one of the things I've learned as a leader is how many leaders are men. And (laughs) (laughs) um, I feel like once I got to the mid-career to senior point, I kind of looked up from the Mm -hmm. hedgerows and was like, whoa, (laughs) where are the women? This is Academes, a podcast about women in academia, living the dream, or are we? beginning of each episode, we like to acknowledge our Patreon patrons. Today, we recognize the contributions of Mei Chen, Heidi Kim, Sonia Crandall, Allison Tebow, and Jess Roman. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. Welcome to Academe's podcast, Dr. Clara Lee. Will you tell us your discipline, institutional affiliations, and a bit about your research? I'm a plastic and reconstructive surgeon and a health services researcher at The Ohio State University. I have an appointment in the College of Medicine as well as in the College of Public Health. My research looks at how people make decisions. And specifically, I uh, try to understand and help support patients and clinicians in making decisions about cancer treatments. I um, watched a video online of you talking about operating, (laughs) and you like kind of lit up. Um, And one of the quotes from the video was you were saying, it's thrilling to be a surgeon. And as somebody who's never performed surgery, Um, I would love for you to tell me what's joyful about the act of surgery. Wow. So I love being a surgeon. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And it's so intuitive to me that I almost can't explain Hmm. why or how. Um, But it is really a joy and a serious privilege like I I literally like sometimes can't believe I get to do what I do um it's it's really cool so I've reflected a little bit about what is it that's thrilling and satisfying um I think it's a number of things so some of it is just kind of practical or like you know I I work with my hands and at the end of that someone is better generally Mm -hmm. like so I this notion of helping someone by doing something that requires a great deal of skill and expertise and care and attention and I do that and and someone is better as a result that's deeply satisfying to me. Um, 
And then at another level, I don't know how to put this other than it's just really fun, yeah. <laughs> which sounds kind of, I feel sort of badly saying that. I think all academics have something that they think is fun that seems weird to other people. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like, mean, epidemiologists are like, ooh, we're accruing more cases, which oh. is basically people getting sick. And you're like yes, excited about right. your study. Yes. 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 So it's surgery is fun. And it's fun in a way that um, partly in that it, it really sort of scratches an itch for me. Like mm -hmm. I, I like to think geometrically and to solve a structural problem. And as a reconstructive surgeon, I'm mostly putting things back together. And so mm -hmm. there's something about my brain that that works. And so it's, it's challenging and immensely satisfying um, to do. So that's one level where it's just fun. But I think what I really love about being a surgeon is uh, how intimate it is with the patient, um, which also probably sounds kind of weird, but um, like I, I am so close to a person, you know, like what very few things are more intimate than uh, operating on them. And, um, and they're vulnerable and I'm taking care of them. To me, there's something about that also that is both daunting and really satisfying. Like I, it, it, I feel like I have a great privilege in what I do as a surgeon. Do you, I, I hear pride and a feeling that you can do something that's important for somebody else. You sound like you also think you're good at what you do. You're like, me being in this room is better for this person than just any <laughs> Joe Schmo being in this room. Yes. Yeah, you know, I, I'm pretty good at what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I, I'm a really good surgeon, and yeah. I, I am proud of that. And I... I feel like uh, I know I can do a good job mm -hmm. and make a difference and I can often help other surgeons uh, be better at what they do um, mm -hmm. in, because a lot of what I do is cancer reconstruction. So the cancer surgeon can do the resection that they need to do because I'm good at what I do in putting it back together. What's the goal of reconstructive surgery? What I do most often is breast reconstruction um, in women with, who have breast cancer, which is mostly about uh, how the breast looks and feels. Mm -hmm. And so that's helping the person recover from this operation and feel whole again, which is very different from some other um, types of surgeries that I do. So I also operate on um, patients with sarcoma and melanoma and some other cancers, but those are the main ones. In those cases, it's actually less about um, how things look and feel, but more just have to fill the defect. So mm -hmm. um, some sarcomas are very deforming and um, the resection will expose bone or blood vessels mm. or something. And it has to be put back together in a way that um, is more complex than just closing it. Um, so in that case, it's the goal is to um, close things back up so that the person can live or be functional yeah. and they can walk again or something like that. 
when you talked about thinking geometrically, when you think back to being a kid, is there anything in your childhood mm. interests that like you feel like is a direct tie to what you do now? Oh, so interesting. Um, I think mainly that I've always been really anal retentive. (laughs) 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 And like I always having liked having things in their place and clean (laughs) and perfect and like really detailed. Um, So that's part of it. Um, Not as a, well, as a kid, I really liked to cook and specifically Uh to bake. And then um, while I was a surgery resident, I taught myself how to decorate cakes. Um, And so I've made um, wedding cakes and other kinds of big cakes. And that definitely plays to the same kind of skills and interests. You explained some about being a reconstructive surgery and specializing a lot in breast cancer and, you know, mostly working on cisgendered women, I assume. So in your training, like, how are you trained to think about women and their relationships to their bodies or just people's relationships to their bodies in general? Yeah. In my formal training, I would say the short answer is not very well, (laughs) not very intentionally, uh, honestly. Um, As a plastic surgery trainee, I was almost exclusively trained by white, cisgender, heterosexual men. What is plastic surgery like as a field and what is its history and, you know, why do you think it is like it is? So plastic surgery is remarkably diverse clinically mm-hmm. and people don't, make, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the word plastic, the root of is it of it is change, oh, you know, yeah. so, so the idea of plastic surgery is to like mold things and put things together or move things around um, and its origins really were in reconstruction. Mm. Most people now think of plastic surgery as cosmetic surgery and, and a lot of plastic surgeons are purely cosmetic surgeons but um, a lot of it is reconstruction. Um, I, I'm not sure why it's so male dominated other than that surgery generally is um, and you may know that the higher paying professions are are male dominated. Um, The surgical professions are, and the more subspecialized a field is, the more it's male dominated. Um, Plastic surgery actually I have found is a little gentler Mm -hmm. than some other surgical fields, but it's still mostly men. And it's interesting because most Cosmetic surgery patients by far are women. Yeah. Um, and all breast reconstruction patients, well, not all, but most are women. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of women patients and a lot of male surgeons. You were talking about the training and you were saying that there wasn't a lot of good formal training on how to think about women and their bodies. Um, and so I don't yeah. know how you picked up, because definitely through your research, you show an ethos that I found interesting. Yeah, so so in my training, I was taught all kinds of things that <laughs> would, I'm pretty sure, upset you. For example, here's a good one, and it totally bears out in the patients I see. I was literally told by multiple surgeons, 
when you're putting in breast implants, either for cosmetic surgery or for reconstruction, always make the woman bigger than she says she wants to be. <sighs> and the worst part is that when I was training, I was like, oh, okay, you're supposed to do that, check, you know? And the rationale was like, well, you know, women don't want to say how big they want to be. So you just have to make them bigger. This They'll is be so happy interesting. How crazy is that? <laughs> so, oh, here's another one. Wow. Here's another good one. Um, I'm trying to think how it, exactly it goes, but it's something like, um, how big do you need to make a, a woman? You know, after all, a handful is enough. Yeah. <laughs> like stuff like that got said in my like you know Friday morning educational conference. Like, yeah. Educational conference. Okay. Yes. So that was how I got trained. Um, and when I got into practice, you know, I, 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 you know, I quickly realized, okay, something, yeah. <laughs> something was inadequate. And I've actually, over the course of my practice, have seen so many women who come to me basically because their implants are too big. And I'm like, you know, I told the doctor I wanted to be a B cup and Uh, he made me a D cup. Um, It's breaking my heart. I know it's heartbreaking. It's shocking. It's so upsetting. Um, Okay. But how did I learn? Um, You know, I think I mostly learned from my patients, Mm -hmm. you know, hearing them talk about what was important to them. Um, and then when I started to do research, when I first started my career, um, I noticed there were some, uh, some papers showing practice variations mm-hmm. for breast reconstruction after mastectomy. And I didn't know a whole lot about research, but I thought I would basically kind of use CR database, other databases to try to, you know, tease that out. And then I, um, decided partly because of my mentor, who you may have known, Mike Pignoni at mm-hmm. UNC. Um, he said, you know, this sounds to me like it's about decisions. How are people mm-hmm. making decisions? And he really encouraged me to think about that. And that opened my whole world to this notion of shared decision-making and eliciting patients' preferences about what was important to them. Um, and so I started doing research on that. And then my own research and others in that related in that domain, I learned from that, that mm. the patients are experts in what, what matters to them. And I, some of that spilled over from my research into my practice. Did you know you wanted to do research? Yes, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I, um, you know, I had a policy background before I went to medical school and I knew I wanted to connect that somehow mm-hmm. to my career. I really didn't know how, especially once I decided to become a surgeon. And then I really didn't when I decided to become a plastic <laughs> surgeon. Like, sure, you know, plastic surgery and policy. Like, I didn't know how it was going to fit together. And then I realized one way that it could was by doing research um, yeah. policy relevant issues. Um, and so when I first got into practice or in my first faculty position, I um, when I was actually looking for faculty positions, I wanted. I looked for ones where I could train in, learn how to do research and would 
uh, really foster that. One of your papers in JAMA surgery, um, one of the conclusions is researchers found that women who chose immediate reconstruction after a mastectomy overestimated how satisfied they would be with their appearance, whereas women who chose not to reconstruct post-breast cancer surgery generally underestimated future satisfaction. So I definitely get the impression that you're patient-centered and that patient satisfaction is super important to you, but also that it can be hard for patients to predict exactly how they're going to feel under different decisions. All these decisions they're being asked to make at a time that sounds like it's really stressful. Yeah, you've hit on such an important um, and fascinating aspect of how we make decisions that all of us are pretty bad at predicting how we're going to feel in the future, unless it's about something that's really familiar to us. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, when you pick what kind of, what, what to have for dinner, you can make a pretty good prediction of, you know, how how you're going to feel with that. Or even when you predict what kind of, or how you're going to feel when you decide about a car, Mm -hmm. if you've, if you've bought a car before, you can, pretty well estimate how you're going to feel after you buy that. Although even purchases, people overestimate how happy, most of the day overestimate how long they're going to yeah. feel happy about it, um, the duration of that. Uh, but for unfamiliar things, yeah. uh, we're, we're, we're not very good um, at predicting how we're gonna, going to feel. Uh, so yeah, that really, I, that's based on, you know, a lot of psychology research. And so I thought, when I learned about that, I thought, this is happening in breast cancer surgery. Yeah. And I want to ask women, you know, what, how do you think you're going to feel 12 months from now? And so we did. And, and yeah, we found that um, it was consistent with the psychology research that mm-hmm. a, a life, a negative life event, we tend to think it's going to be worse for and for longer than it is. And a positive life event, we think it's we tend to think it's going to be better and for longer than it is. So the people who didn't immediately like, you know, have surgery to make breasts look like they did before, like they probably thought it was going to feel worse than it actually did, but maybe people overestimated how quote unquote normal they would feel by like having reconstructed breasts. So women who had reconstruction thought that they would be, pretty satisfied with how their breasts looked and felt. And in fact, when we then asked them at 12 months, how satisfied they were, they were not quite as satisfied as they thought they were. And in some cases they thought that they would be even um, happier with their breasts Uh, than they were before having a mastectomy, which is kind of remarkable. And, you know, psychologists think there's two reasons for this, um, or uh, there could be several, but one of them is that, um, you know, people are wired to adapt to mm-hmm. adversity yeah. and we're also ad- wired to adapt to good things. Like we just kind of go back to our, you know, something's great. And then we kind of like, yeah, kind of <laughs> used to it, you know? So we adapt, but we, we don't know that we adapt yeah. we don't take that into account when we make decisions. And then the other is what they call focalism, which is mm-hmm. when we make a decision about something like about the car or about yeah. surgery, we think just about that. And we don't, necessarily take into account all the other aspects of our lives that are going to keep going on that contribute to our well-being. How has doing this research um, influenced how you talk to patients? Mm. So it's influenced it in a couple ways. 
One is uh, the content. Like I, I definitely bring in some content from my research. Um, like I, I ask women not just, um, I ask them like how concerned they are about how they're going to look in clothing and how concerned they are about how they're going to look without clothing on. Because mm -hmm. we found in our research that, um, that women have different preferences about that and their motivation for seeking reconstruction it may be different. So some women really care how they're going to look without clothes and mm -hmm. others just want to be able to like get dressed in the morning and look okay. Um, so I always ask that. So some content, but then also it's changed how I ask questions. So one of the things that I always ask uh, a patient when we're talking about breast reconstruction is I ask them, when you think about having surgery, what are you most concerned about? Mm. And that's almost just like a actual question in one of the scales that we developed. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I remember when we developed it being like, people aren't going to know how to answer that question. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, in our focus groups, they did. And in, in our testing, they did. But then I tried it out in patients. And I, I remember at first feeling like they're going to be like, what do you mean? What am I most concerned about? But mm -hmm. every patient has an answer. A lot of them have an answer right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And you can't predict. You can't predict what a person is going to say. You know, an older patient may say, I'm, I'm really concerned about my appearance. Mm -hmm. um, a younger patient may say, I'm really concerned about the recovery time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can't, you know, expect what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, and you can't know unless you actually ask her that question. Yeah. So it's affected how I how I ask things too. And so does that does any of that affect your kind of clinical approach or yeah how does how yeah how does it end up influencing y your practice? Yeah, so I try to engage in shared decision making with my patients. Mm -hmm. So for example, if uh, if someone tells me I'm really concerned about the recovery time Mm -hmm. But I'm not so concerned about my appearance when I'm not wearing clothing. Then I might say, well, given what you've told me, you know, I always go through all the options, but then I might say, given what you've told me are your preferences, it may be better for you to have implant reconstruction mm -hmm. rather than some other um, approaches that look and feel more natural, but take a really long time to recover from. That's so I try to incorporate yeah. what they've said into how I lay out the options. Yeah. Do you do any reconstructive surgery on um, cis or trans men or trans women? So I, uh, I definitely operate on um, cis men who mm -hmm. like not really for breast reconstruction, although I have done that, but you know, mm -hmm. breast cancer is rare in men. Um, but you know, for other conditions for, um, for gender affirmation surgery, we've mm -hmm. actually just started doing that at my institution, and oh, I'm wow. and I'm it's something that I'm just about to start doing, and I'm really looking forward to that. That's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. A new challenge. I have a feeling you're yes. a person who's like, oh, a new like way I can yes. contribute and do something different and yes. challenging. Actually, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, yeah. We want to hear from you. What do you think of this episode? Tell us about your experience as an academic. You can reach us on Twitter at academspodcast, by email at academspodcast at gmail.com, or please leave us a voicemail at 919 666 
1-800-273-7301. And if you like what you hear, rate us on your favorite podcast app. It'll help people find us. Um, so some of our listeners are academic women who are actively dating and report that it can be hard to date as a very career oriented woman with lots of credentials. And so I wanted to know if you had any dating stories or advice you'd be willing to share with us. Yeah. So many, Um, (laughs) so many stories, not necessarily so many stories that I want to share, but, um, so yeah, you know, I think, I think it's a real issue. so when I was a surgery resident, as I mentioned, most of my colleagues were men. And actually, you know, interestingly, I would hang out mostly, you know, with a, a lot of male residents mm-hmm. and they would say stuff about dating and about women around me that like, it's just crazy <laughs> stuff. Um, anyway, but that's not really the question. So, um, you know, I... I got set up a few times with Korean men, Mm -hmm. but mostly by either family friends or my own friends. Um, And I think most guys were not used to dating a woman who was training to be a surgeon, but particularly I think Korean men didn't... it just seemed a little odd. <laughs> and when you say Korean, you mean like Korean nationals, maybe who had immigrated or Korean American men? Or- uh, they were Korean American. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the other thing I would say is I found that I I got into this mode of like, acting like a guy kind of during residency. Um, And I couldn't really turn it off or on. Like it kind of became who I was during general surgery residency. And in retrospect, I think that kind of made it hard to date guys. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm very curious what it, what it was like to date me. (laughs) Um, It must've been, weird but um and then after general surgery residency when I got into plastic surgery residency plastic surgery residency was more humane and Mm -hmm. um less macho um and I think I became more myself Mm -hmm. and could bring my like real self to dates and you know meeting men but um but you know the other side of like adopting this sort of male these male characteristics was I think at the same time I also adopted these like super feminine characteristics <laughs> like almost a compensate mm-hmm. so I like was really concerned about like I dressed really well um part of that was living in New York City but like I dressed like I was really into fashion and makeup and hair and all that but then my behaviors were kind of like a guy it was interesting strange um yeah and I think um I guess it was wasn't until after my training that I could just be my normal self 
and I think that's when I had healthy relationships and yeah. um, when I met my husband. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. Yeah, like that resonates where when you're going through a period where maybe you're adapting your personality to get through the period and you're not able to be yourself, it's hard to like attract and find somebody who's a good match yeah. for you. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, you are a step parent and part yeah. of a dual career academic couple. And so I'd love to know more about the dynamics of being in a blended family. I think we talk some about career decisions when you're partnered. And I think probably being in a blended family just adds other, another set of people to consider yeah. when you think about career. Yeah. So I met my husband, Bill, um, in my, towards the end of my first year of my first faculty job. Um, and his kids, who are now my kids, um, <laughs> Sam, Sam was... I think seven and wow. Leah was nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was interesting. Um, like it was my first encounter with like anything remotely of being like a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got married two years later. And so in addition to getting married, I became like, I now had a husband and I instantly was a mom. Um, mm-hmm with two kids and um that was really intense uh, it that was a really challenging you know, time I mean I think parenting is always hard um and in fact there were lots of times when I was I would be I would say to Bill like I don't know how to do this you know I just started I don't like I just became a parent it's not fair I don't know how and he would look at me like I don't know how we, <laughs> like, just because they came for me, I, I don't know. <laughs> and it was very um, sort of humbling and reassuring at the same time. Um, so, but, uh, you know, when I, when that all happened was also the time probably similar for a lot of us when I was trying to get tenure mm-hmm. and trying to make it as an academic. Um, and adjusting to this new family all of a sudden. Uh, so I, you know, I had the great benefit of not having like, like I didn't have the physical aspect of parent of like, you know, becoming pregnant, delivering all of that, um, being up in the middle of the night. I, I did not have all of that. And I sometimes really wish I had, but often I think like, you know, I did, that was, uh, it was a privilege to not have that. Um, uh, but I did have this instant family. And then on top of that, I, you know, had two kids who had already been parented mm-hmm. up to that point by their mom and their dad. Um, and suddenly I was introduced into the mix and every, you know, we parented, uh, the three of us parented together and that was hard. Uh, that was one of the hardest things I've done as an adult. Um, it remains one of the hardest things. But uh, like a lot of things, it was you know incredibly gratifying. Um, so I forget the question, but um, just making career decisions because I know a lot of people yeah. can sometimes be constrained by needing to be near their kids or not, and right. so yeah, I don't know how that affects you. 
Yeah, so, um, so career decisions, for sure, um, basically, kind of like anyone, your mobility is limited by your partner or your, you know, your parents or whatever your social mm -hmm. dynamic is. For me, it was, I could only move if so, you know, Bill's an academic also, and mm -hmm. then his ex-wife, um, she happens to be an academic, but mostly mm -hmm. she had a job, you know, and so, and their agreement was neither their sort of uh, memorandum of understanding or whatever it was mm -hmm. that neither parent would move without the acceptance, of, you know, approval of the other. And, and we had, you know, equal custody in our two homes. And so essentially neither would, we would never live apart from where she lives. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, that added an additional dynamic of when we could consider ever leaving UNC. But otherwise, I think it just added, you know, having a blended family, I learned so much about myself. Mm -hmm. um, mostly I, I learned how to handle emotional challenges in a way that, like I, I after a lot of therapy, I learned how to do that and how to get along with, with another person. Um, the other dynamic was, you know, my kids are white mm -hmm. and I'm Asian mm -hmm. and we, we lived in a rural part of North Carolina. We lived in Apex. Um, and that was kind of weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it was kind of alienating, like, going to soccer tournaments in rural North Carolina. Yeah. And for one thing, being the only Asian, and then on top of that, being like, oh, who's your kid? Uh, that blonde kid. <laughs> That's my kid, you know. Um, so that added another dynamic um, to it. So mostly I would just say it was stressful. But the way it really affected career decisions was we could only plan things. We had to plan things, at, you know, among the three parents. Everything mm -hmm. had to be planned that way. And so when you decided to move to Ohio, was that um, because, was there, was there a special like developmental stage the kids were at that made that possible or? Yeah, for that? sure. Um, I liked it. I always remember that Sam's high school education and my K award <laughs> were like on the same track. So like I could move when my K was, you know, I, when I was pretty much finishing my K okay. and also like launching to get my R and when Sam was finishing high school. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we started really, we didn't even really consider moving um, before Sam's junior year. Then once he entered his junior year, actually, even then, I don't think we had necessarily intended to leave. Um, <laughs> but I felt really strongly at that point about leaving UNC yeah. for all, all kinds of reasons. Um, and so we started to plan that together. What are the benefits you think of changing institutions around the time that you did? So like you completed training, you've had some career awards, you're about to enter this like next, maybe more mid-career-ish stage. Yeah. Yeah. So um, some of the benefits I didn't even realize until I got here. Like mm -hmm. I think when I got here, um, things that I was already doing at UNC, like the the focus of my research and um, some of the administrative stuff that I became interested in, like 
I like people seem to find me more novel and interesting yeah. here yeah. than at UNC, and I don't think I changed. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it just became fresher. Um, yeah, and uh, it that opened up opportunities. I'm still in a stage where I just really love research and I want to grow my research. I feel like I'm at the beginning of that. And the idea of like administration and leadership, I think it's so important, but it feels like, uh, it can be a drain too. Yeah. I don't know how you think about it. Like, it sounds like you feel like it could be a good service and it could be something that you might want to do. Yeah. So I, I do, I have some of that ambivalence that you kind of expressed. Um, but so one of the things that definitely has changed in the last, in, you know, we've been at Ohio State for the last four years mm-hmm. has been the pace at which I've taken on leadership roles. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been remarkable. And I, I did not set out to do that at all, um, but it, it's just happened. And so I, it, in other words, it has felt natural Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's reassuring to me that like, it feels like me and, yeah. it, and I've taken on leadership roles that in areas that are really aligned with my own personal mission. So, um, one in particular is I'm the director of women's academic advancement mm-hmm. in the college of medicine here. Um, and I'm super passionate about that, <laughs> but just doing that like has, opened a lot of doors for me, but mostly like that leadership role initially, I was able to kind of stretch my legs in Mm -hmm. leadership and learn how to lead people. And, um, and then it also, uh, sort of got me a seat at the table in various Mm -hmm. discussions. And that sort of, I, I guess I kind of proved myself and more opportunities opened up. So it has felt somewhat natural. Um, but the other part of leadership for me, I, I am ambivalent because, um, well, for a few reasons. One is I really love research. Kind of like you, I feel like it's finally gotten good. Like mm-hmm. a, I'm in a good space and like I want to keep taking the time to work on it. Um, and then as a, obviously I love being a surgeon and that just takes time. Mm-hmm. It, there's, yeah. you know, especially like doing really complex operations, you have to do them a certain amount to stay good at it. Um, yeah. so I'm ambivalent in that way. Cause I want to, I love those things, but, um, I think my main interest in leadership is almost like a duty. People have told me that I've done well in leadership roles. And so I feel like, okay, if I, if I can, I have to, I like, it's a way that I can provide service. Um, and there are various areas where I feel really passionately that I, I have to provide service, especially related to gender equity. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to, equity in the academy generally and if I can do something about that I feel like I I should and I I want to too but it's it's daunting too yeah yeah you said that you've learned some things about leading people so what what have you learned about leadership and effective leadership hmm I've learned to be more decisive mm-hmm. 
um, I think my own, and I've learned a lot about how I make decisions. I, when I first took on a few leadership roles and observed other leaders, I sometimes thought like, you, you didn't ask for enough opinions. You didn't, what, you know, like yeah. it, it struck me like how decisive they were and quick. Um, mm-hmm. And I've realized that I, I re- learned to take on some of that, but balanced by being open to others. So I've, I've learned to balance consensus building and seeking others' opinions with action and being decisive, which I'm still figuring that out. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've learned as a leader is um, how many leaders are men. um you know I I, again it's kind of like my residency thing like I just didn't fully process like I was just so working so hard you know like writing my papers and Mm -hmm. like operating I feel like once I got to the like mid-career to senior point I kind of looked up from the Mm -hmm. hedgerows and was like whoa like (laughs) where are the women and and now that I'm like sometimes at the table, I'm like, where are the women? <laughs> and so I've learned, you know, little tricks on how to deal with that. Uh, but mostly it's incredibly draining. Um, I, but I've learned the importance of functioning in often what is a male, a man's world um, if I want to lead. Could you share some of the tricks with us? Oh, sure. <laughs> Hopefully no one that I've done these with. <laughs> I don't think, I think people are oblivious. That's the good yeah, thing. Okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> exactly. Um, so many of the meetings I have with le- other leaders are about gender equity in mm-hmm. academic medicine. I'm very careful to allow a male leader to kind of come to understand things at his pace um, and to sort of, um, it's kind of like the movie Inception. Ooh, okay. (laughs) So like, I like to like plant the idea in their mind. Without them knowing that I planted it there. Well, you're like, an evil genius. Thank you. <laughs> like, you know, I've heard you talk about how important faculty development is. And I see in your department that you have X number of women. I, I really appreciate that. And it must have taken some consideration. Yeah. About, yeah. And then I follow it up with... Thank you for talking about X, Y, and Z. I really appreciate your insights in particular about the importance of promotion and tenure opportunities, but blah, blah, blah. Um, this is good. This is good stuff. Yeah. So I think of it as inception. I think you have to be yeah. careful because a lot of people are really smart and <laughs> duplicitous. Um, um, is this, are these things you picked up in formal leadership training? You said you've done some formal trainings or just along the way? Uh, those that kind of thing I've totally just picked up as my own tactic um yeah the other so 
here's another tactic, which is to just populate the room. So populate the room with sympathetic ears or sympathetic mm -hmm. bodies who, you know, if you're going to propose something, um, uh, but also populate it with, well, to the extent that you can control it, but you know, you can, if you can't, then you sort of put out little feelers ahead of the meeting to, um, and I have done that with individuals who may not be so sympathetic, but are either neutral or are interested in either appearing <laughs> progressive yeah. or have some other reason, some reason to care about what I'm about to propose. Um, Listening to you makes me glad that you are in leadership, but it also makes me a little tired. <laughs> but it's good. Like this is kind of yes. if you want to affect change, you have to understand the stakeholders, and like I yes. see all of that. Yes. But it's work. It's totally work. Uh, it's yeah. In fact, sometimes I I get off conference calls lately, you know, or come home from a meeting and I'm just like, yeah. wow, like all this, like psychoanalyzing and planning and like calling this person ahead of time. And like it, it's kind of crazy to be, to be doing this and for the sake of getting women into leadership, into more <laughs> leadership positions, you know, it's just, yeah, it's yeah. work. Like this is the effort it takes. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, how do you think about goal setting now? Because you've hit so many of the like milestones in a successful oh. career. So oh, thank like, you. Yeah, like how do you think about goal setting? Um, not very, not in a very <laughs> You're too busy doing the organized thing. way. Um, so I, it's somewhat different for the different parts of my life. Yeah. Um, so for my clinical work, it's kind of like what you said, like I like, a, a new challenge so I, I set a goal of like doing what I have been doing but even better um, but also I I seek new opportunities clinically and mm -hmm. um, and then with my research I I've lately been I think I've gotten to a point where you know so for so many years all I wanted was to get an R. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's just like every morning, wake up, like, gotta get my R. <laughs> Go to bed at night, I gotta get my R. <laughs> like, you know, everything. It, you know, should we take vacation? I don't know. There might be an R on deadline. Like, right? So for years, it's just like, and then when I got it, I was, well, first of all, there was kind of this like, oh, okay. Huh. There's no band, you know, there's no like, <laughs> There's no celebration. Oh, now I got to do it. And, no, um, yeah. And so I, I, in general, I feel like I'm at this point in my career where I'm like, I have to be intentional about my research, not just as like, I have to get this thing. Because mm -hmm. it was so, it, in some ways, it was easy to just be so laser focused on, on that. Yeah. And I try to come back to, how can I have impact now? And and in fact, I've sort of reflected on what I've been doing and asked myself, like, wow, have I really even had that much impact? Um, and so then I 
when on, on a good day, I turn it around instead and go like, okay, what, what do I need to do to really have impact? So for example, a lot of the work I did before, like the paper that you described was mm -hmm. describing the quality of decisions about breast reconstruction. The work that I'm doing now is uh, implementing a clinical decision support tool okay. for breast reconstruction and doing it in a way that it can be scalable and disseminated. Mm -hmm. And I think, so then I think what's the next thing how I can have impact. And um, so I try to use that to set my goals in my research. Um, instead of just like, I got to get the bar, I got to hit that <laughs> bar, you know? Um, and then admin in terms of administration or leadership, it kind of goes back to what you said before, like what, or what we were talking about that I want to provide service and especially in a way that, um, will advance equity. I, I feel a great need to do that, but I actually, I'm not exactly sure how. I don't know what's the mm -hmm. best way to do that, um, especially because it will involve delving, like just being surrounded by a lot of people who haven't really advanced equity up till mm -hmm. now. Um, do I really wanna fight that fight every day? So I'm still figuring out those goals. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else on your mind that you'd like to say? One thing that's been on my mind a lot lately, which I think is really relevant to academes, is I've been thinking a lot about women in the home, mm -hmm. the, the responsibilities we play, or we take on in the home. And um, I've loved the conversations you and Sarah have had about this on the podcast, but it's, it's really laid bare by the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, at, at first when my colleagues started talking to me about like, well, you know, women faculty have so many childcare responsibilities and all that. I thought like, this is an issue in the home. It's not, at least it's not a university issue, but it is, I mean, mm -hmm. it is, but I guess what I was going to say is, I suppose for the younger listeners who are still choosing partners, mm -hmm. um, it's really important as an academic woman to have a partner who shares in the home life. It has to be equal. Um, and they need to share it like with gusto, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm cleaning that up, you know, and <laughs> I'm picking up the kids. <laughs> like they not sort of like, yeah, tell me when to pick up the kid. Like, they, yeah. um, and I don't mean to say that to the individual women listening, like make sure you find a guy that's like <laughs> that or a woman who's going to do that. But like more like that's, that's where academic, that's as a population, academic women need that. Um, to really advance and to, to become chair and to become head of the Institute and to become the Dean, um, that there has to be equality in the home too, I think. And I, so I've been really thinking about that because of the pandemic. Yeah. 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 
Um, our final question uh-huh. is kind of the standard, is academia a dream, a game, or a scam? And so I wanted to know what you think. Yeah. For me, it's a dream and a scam. Okay. I like it. Uh, Solid choices. The dream part is my parents were both academics. Uh-huh. Um, and they came to the U.S. from Korea mm-hmm. to attend college. Um, and my dad was a physics professor. My mother was an art history professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I've, like, it It was a dream for for me to be like my parents. And so it's a, it's a dream for me that I'm doing what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and that I'm part of a university it's, and that I'm, educating the next generation and contributing to knowledge like that's just how cool is that (laughs) um the scam though (laughs) is that academia is not a meritocracy Mm -hmm. and i honestly i thought it was and and you're taught through so many years of schooling and then training and postdoc and all of that. If you work really hard, you'll, you know, and dream big and all those things. And the subtext of that is that it is a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And then you get here and it's not. Um, so it's kind of a scam in that way. But I still love it. I really love hearing from and talking to people who are passionate about what they do. And so that's one of the things that's made it really great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for sharing uh, your story and your perspective and your work with us. It's been a great experience. I've loved talking to you. Academes was produced by Mara Bookbinder, Whitney Robinson, and me, Sarah Birkin. Miriam Ock edits and provides administrative support for the podcast. Our artwork is by Melissa Hudgens at Leafy Greens Design, and we receive funding from listeners like you. If you'd like to donate to help with the podcast's ongoing operations, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash academiespodcast. Thanks! Thanks!